All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. This is your first time here. Uh, my name is Thomas. I'm part of staff, and I'm glad that you guys could join us today. Um, if you were here with us last week, we mentioned that we're going to be starting a new church year starting today. It's kind of a new calendar year for our church. It's kind of a parallel to how the school system is. And a lot of the sermons that we're, we're kind of at least kicking off this year, it's a lot more pastoral, I would say. All the sermons that are there, it's because of a specific type of uh, direction that we try to pastor our church during this, this season. And we said today would be the beginning of a new sermon series that we call uh, Life with God. And this is to kind of, uh, it's not just a random series, but this is meant to kind of kick off uh, where our church is headed this upcoming season. And it's a very intentional um, type of kickoff. Uh, you know, we don't want to just preach books, out of the books or sermon series just randomly, but uh, especially this year, there's a lot of intention behind this. And we said last week that uh, there's five shifts that we want to make as a church. And, you know, one shift that we want to make was our Sunday worship, the, the gathering here today. Uh, from a culture of observation and attendance to actually we, we feel like that we're here communing with God, that God is present here, that uh, when he, he invites us here, uh, he hears our prayers. We really believe God when the Bible is being preached that God is speaking. And so today, uh, we, we, that's one reason why the, the rhythm of confession, we wanted that to be normal where we actually take a moment to confess our sins before the living God. And another uh, shift in rhythm is when we hear God's word, one thing that we actually want to do is recognize that God is speaking when we read the scriptures. And so as we look at the passage today from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, and Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 3, uh, it's, if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there, but if you have your programs, that could be where you read from. But one thing we actually want to do as a culture of church is when we read the scriptures, we actually want to invite all of us to rise, and all of us to stand if you're able. So if we can, can we all rise and stand together? And it will just be the portion when we read the scriptures. But this is just to recognize that, again, we're not just reading any text, but we really believe at this church that God speaks through his word. And so if you're there, uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, we'll read that, and then we'll go to Revelation 21. So this is the Apostle John writes, In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the apostle writes in Revelation, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Can I pray first real quick before we see it? Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, would you speak to us now? Help us, Lord, to hear what you have to say and how you, O oh Lord, want to shepherd and pastor your church at this moment. We, are, we recognize that you are here and you're present and your spirit moves amongst your people. So would you bless this time as we hear from you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May you please be seated. Well, that felt good. That felt, yeah, we're honoring God here. And so that, that's awesome. Um, well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm on Instagram, and if some of you follow me on Instagram, I follow some of you on Instagram. But just know, as a, it's it's hard to follow. If you're like 28 or under, or 25 or under, it's really hard to follow you on Instagram. Like I almost want to mute you because you are living the life that I want to live. Like your life looks so fun. Like you're just like traveling whenever you want to. You're going out to eat whenever you want to. You're visiting different places. And, and I just know you are taking it for granted. Like you just think this is how your life is going to be, right? But, you know, all of us older people who have, like, when we have kids, like, we just can't do that. 
And so you're, you're living the life that I, I want to live. And you know, so if I mute you and I don't know what's going on in your life, it's not, it's not you. It's me. It really is. And, but just know uh, when our kids get older, uh, my wife and I, one thing that we hope to do is we hope to uh, travel a lot. Like, that's kind of our goal. Like, well, as soon as the kids get older and they can take care of themselves, we'll travel. And I know one place my wife really wants us to visit is Europe, because we've never been to Europe before. Um, and, you know, when you go to Europe, uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of you, you, you visit, you've been there, you take it for granted, but we've never been there. Uh, and when we go there, we, you know, we want to hear, like, different recommendations, like, which country should we visit? Should it be, like, Spain or so forth? And I do know, whatever all the countries we visit, though, there is one spot, one country that I want to make sure we visit, and that's Italy, because uh, I hear Italy, it contains the greatest pieces of art in the world. Uh, I'm, I love art, I love art history, and uh, you know, in Italy, that's where you kind of see all the great pieces, like from uh, the Statue of David, uh, to the Sistine Chapel, uh, to the painting of the Last Supper. I wouldn't know this, but I heard that it's all there. Um, so those are kind of some spots that I want to go. But you know, if you've been to Italy, there's actually one place I heard, one piece of art, that's like a must-see. And I'm not sure if you guys ever heard this before, but it's called the, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, the Mausoleum of Gala Placidia. That is a spot that people say is you need to go there if you're an art buff because it is, quote, the earliest and best preserved of all mosaic monuments. The most ancient and best preserved mosaic monument is in Italy, and they say you should go there. But here's the thing. If you ever go to Italy, and if you enter the mausoleum, and you go, oh, I heard of this place, it's awesome, and you go into it, and it's your first time, what you will most likely feel is disappointed. Because when you walk into this room, it's, it looks like this. It's on the screen. It's very dark. It has a small window that's a little bit of light. And you look at this, you go, this is it. This is the mausoleum. This is the place that I was told to travel in one of my few days in Italy that I should visit. And oftentimes when visitors walk away from this experience, they feel underwhelmed. They feel like this is kind of lame. And the reason why they feel that way is because they don't know that in this room there's actually a spotlight that shines brightly when a tourist drops a coin in a small metal box. So they want your money in order for you to enjoy this. And when you drop the, the coin in the small metal box, what happens is the spotlight lights up and it looks like this. There's this bright illumination of all the tiles in this mosaic. And people say when you look at this and you realize how ancient it is, you realize how beautiful it is, they say it is like this sublime experience. It makes you emotional, it makes you want to cry. Because this is the, the mausoleum. This is like this, it's exactly what it was advertised. And it's so interesting, because if you're a person who came and didn't know about that spotlight, you would think, that thing is lame. But the people who actually see it for what it is, they go, what are you talking about? It is the most beautiful piece of art that they've seen. And the reason why I say that is because I think we kind of have a, a similar type of tension when it comes to Christianity. Uh, some of you, 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 uh, you hear people say that when they became a Christian, and they've encountered Jesus, that their life has changed, that something about themselves is never the same, that Jesus is their most precious treasure in all of life. And some of you, you're, you're a Christian, you, you go to church and you try to do Christian things and you go, I just don't see it. I just, I don't see it. Uh, you, you kind of almost sometimes feel, is this it? Like, you know, I've been a Christian, I, I did altar calls, I went to retreat and I don't know what the Apostle Paul is talking about. I don't know what you guys are talking about when you say that Christianity is this legit thing that's there. And so we, sometimes we, when, ha when that happens, we feel a little bit dissatisfied. We feel like Christianity is irrelevant. 
And so what you'll do is you'll still go to church, you'll still call yourself a Christian, but you know what your real passion and joy is? It's your work or your career, that's what you're really into, or it's your family, that's your real passion, or it's traveling, that's the thing you're into, or it's golf, or it's League of Legends, whatever it might be. There's something else that really captured your heart because while other people say Christianity is great, deep down inside you don't really feel that. And so today what I want to do is I want to argue that maybe this is the case where we find Jesus and Christianity underwhelming because the light's never turned on. We are in front of the mausoleum, but we don't see it for what it is. We don't see Jesus illuminated the way we ought to. And instead, we are in this dark room thinking this is it, and we feel deeply dissatisfied without realizing that we are not nearly, we're not close to experiencing what this room is about. The theologian G.K. Chesterton, he says it like this, quote, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. What Chesterton's getting at is that it's not that you're rejecting Christianity thinking this is lame, but you haven't even tasted Christianity and you're just walking away. And Chesterton's his whole thing is if you actually taste and see who Jesus is, what it means to live with him, you can't walk away feeling wanting. There's something will radically change. And so how does this happen? How do we experience Jesus and the Christian faith in a way that's very life-giving and not life-draining? And I think it's very similar to the mausoleum. We need to, again, know, like, are we really encountering the real Jesus in this way? Because I know for a lot, I know our church. For a lot of you, uh, you are reading your Bible, you're trying to pray, but for some reason, you feel, it feels tiring doing that. If, if we said, let's do a devotional together, you're like, oh, I guess. It's like a tiring thing for you. Or you want to live morally, like you want to follow God, you want to not do bad sins, and yet as you're doing that, God feels really far away, and you don't know why. For some of you, you are serving every single week, but at, the more you serve, the more bitter you are for some reason. Like you're just like, oh, I'm so bitter at, at everyone by serving. And when you see a picture of that, it's so contrary to how we actually see what the Bible says about how to relate with God. And so what I want to do Uh, this next two weeks is next week I want to do a deep dive on how God wants to relate with us and we'll look at a scripture passage to do a deep dive into that but today what I want to do first is I want to deconstruct how we relate to God here I want to deconstruct and diagnose uh, our culture and our our church so see this as like a two-parter one today one next week and today we're just about two things Um, number one how we often relate to God what is the typical human ways that we relate to him And we'll spend most of our time there. And number two, how does scripture reveal the way God wants to relate with us? What does scripture say how the relationship should look like? So how we relate to God, how scripture reveals the way God wants to relate with us. And everything I'm saying, a lot of it besides the passage that we read, uh, it's it's influenced by a lot of content by this book called With by Sky Gentany. Great book, With by Sky Gentany. And this other book called Deeper by Dane Ortland. A lot of that stuff. uh, If you read their books when they copy Tom, no, no, I copied them. So just a heads up. First of all, how we often uh, relate to God. Uh, for those of you who, whether you're a Christian or not, uh, if you have some concept of, uh, of God or some type of deity that's there, how do you relate to him? Uh, and I, I'm very wary of hearing you say what you think it is. Uh, I never want to give a theology test to our church because I don't believe it. 
Uh, we know the right answers, but you know what you really believe? It's, what you, it's your actions. Like, how do you live your life? And it's your emotions. How do, what do you feel in those moments? That kind of really reveals what you truly believe. And I like the way Sky Gently, he breaks down these nice categories that I think could be lifelong categories for us on how people relate to God. And he says it in three simple terms that I want to kind of explain and do a deep dive with. Uh, first one is life under God, life over God, and life for God. Some of us, we relate to God in one of these three ways, and they summarize how we, our relationship is like with them, and there's truth in each of these ways. Each way, there's something true about it, but the problem is when you reduce your relationship with God to one of these ways, you're going to walk away unsatisfied. God won't, that relationship will not feel filled because that's not the way that scripture tells us with the primary way we are to relate with him. So let me break this down and try to figure out which one kind of more accurately describes you and where you are in your relationship with God. First one, life under God. Life under God. When we say life under God, this is how the main way people who live this way, we are living under God's control. God is a mighty God who created all things, that we, and we believe this, and what we should do to relate to him is to follow him, to follow his ways. Uh, another word might be obedience. Um, anthropologists, they'll actually say this paradigm, this view of God, is the primary way that all ancient religions view religion. It is this way to navigate through the world because in, in the ancient world especially, the world is full of chaos, it's full of suffering. And so the question that a lot of ancient civilizations ask is, how do you make sense of this? Like, why is it that I had a good harvest as a farmer, but my neighbor had a bad harvest? Why is it that this city went through a flood and this city went through a drought? Why is it that this person, he experienced a, a plague in his family and this person was healthy? Like, what, how do you make sense of that? And so what the ancient world, how they, they viewed the world to make sense of that is imagine this apple is the world. And like, how does this apple like grow? How does it function? How is it alive? If you cut the core of what makes everything move, it's the will of the gods. There's somebody behind this. Somebody is causing the drought, somebody is causing the famine, somebody is causing the plague, and so what do you do? All the ancient religions is you have to figure out who the gods are, and you have to please them. Make sure that you do, that's why all the ancient religions have rituals, they have sacrifices, because you don't want to uh, get some gods angry or they'll curse you, you want to get blessings from some gods, and so you do the right things in order for the god to be pleased with you and to not be pleased with you. You have to kind of be careful about that. So today, it's, it's a very opposite shift, especially if you're kind of new to Christianity. A lot of us, we tend to think this is uh, the picture of how religion is, right? All religions, they're all saying pretty much the same thing. Like, you know, we all, or we're all different, but they're all going to lead to the same destination, right? Like, you know, Judaism, uh, 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 Christianity, Islam, uh, Buddhism, they're all different, but we're all going to lead to the same destination, the same God. That's how most people in modern Western civilization, uh, civilization think. But the actual truth is it's the opposite of this. It's not we're all leading the same way, but every single religion, we all start in the same place, which is the world is chaotic, the world is full of suffering. What do you do? And every religion has a different path. Every religion says something differently about what you ought to do. How do you experience blessing? How do you experience a path of life that prevents suffering and hardships and chaos? And most religions will say you have to choose the right God. Choose the right God, follow the rituals, make sure you please the gods, and everybody in the ancient world believed this. This is the, the ancient paradigm. So for example, if the book of Job, if you ever read the book of Job, a person named Job went through intense suffering, 
And his friends come to him to comfort him. And their main question to Job is, man, you lost everything. What did you do? You must have ticked off God. You must have, think, man, think, Job. Like, what did you do to do something wrong? And that was the whole book of Job. Or think about in the New Testament when the, in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, Jesus and the apostles are walking. There's a blind person sitting there. And the apostles ask Jesus, hey, this guy who's blind, who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Because they're thinking, oh, he must have done something bad in order to be blind. He must have ticked off the gods or Yahweh to for him that, that to happen. And that's how everyone used to think back then. And when we see this, we go so primitive. Yeah, those are ancient religions. They're very superstitious. They kind of believe all this stuff. But I would argue that a lot of us here today, we still relate to God in the same way. Because the world today, it's still full of chaos. It's still filled with suffering. And for a lot of us, our main thought is, let's just try to obey God, and he will make our path straight. Obey God, and he will hopefully bless us as we obey him. You know, back in the 1990s, if you were kind of in the, in the Christian world back then, it'd be very normal for you, if you were a high school student, to be in an assembly with other Christians, to receive a card, and you sign it pledging that you will make sure to stay sexually pure. That was a big 90s thing. It's called the purity culture, right? And this was during a time in the 90s where the AIDS epidemic became kind of new and divorce rates were rising like crazy. And back in those days, you know, you know what the popular music was? It was all boys to men and Mariah Carey. And you know what songs they sang? It's not just about, you know, what's happening today. It was like romance. It was about finding your true love. And that's what all the themes were about. Because back then, romance was a huge thing and everyone wanted to find somebody that, that they love and experience that. But then there, you have divorce rates and you have like sexual diseases happening. So what do we do? How do we control and make sure that in this chaos that we'll be okay? And one way that's kind of what's proposed is in the Christian world, stay pure. Stay sexually pure. Devote, have the, the, the purity ring. So make sure you commit yourself. And when that happens, God will bless your marriage. I, you know how many times I was told, hey, if you don't have sex before marriage, just wait, because when you get married, oh, the sex is amazing. You will never leave your hotel room. Marriage sex is this awesome thing, so just wait. It's worth it. And if you do have sex before marriage, oh, man, you're in trouble. Your marriage is in trouble. Now, there's some truth. Of course, as Christians, there's a sexual ethic that we should follow. There are consequences to sin and so forth. But what's being communicated to us 90s kids when that was happening? God will bless your obedience, and God will curse your disobedience. And so we try to stay pure. We try to say that we don't sleep around, because that's kind of our paradigm of God. We're a living life under God. Or today, for some of us, if you're not a 90s kid, maybe it might not be exactly that, but when someone asks you, hey, how are you doing spiritually? Like, how's life going? Are you doing okay? Oftentimes, people will say, I'm doing spiritually well because I'm reading my Bible, and I'm praying, and I'm going to church, and I'm avoiding bad sins. Because deep down inside, that's how we frame our view with God. We're living life under him. Deep down inside, we do this because we are, this is what we think leads to a blessed life with him, and to not do these things, it leads to this discontentment, this displeasure from God. And again, there's truth to that, but the problem is, when that is the main way you relate to God, and this is often a very like conservative, Asian way to relate to God, there's a couple of things that happen. One is that it's really hard to enjoy God in this relationship. God is a, a burden more than someone who's your joy. You know, have you, do you watch Dancing with the Stars? Like, I sometimes watch it when there's nothing else to watch. And they, they're smiling when they're dancing, but I know they're not happy when they're dancing. I, I know it, because you know why? The whole world is watching them. 
The whole world is viewing them. Judges are literally going to uh, critique everything they do. How can dancing be fun under such strict observation and critique? It's a lot different than when I see people at weddings. People at weddings, when they dance, they don't care. They're just having fun. They're just enjoying. And it's interesting how I think that's often the Christian life. For some of us, when you're living the Christian life, it's like dancing with the stars. It's all performance. It's all like evaluation. It's all how often did I read? How often did I pray? How often did I struggle with lust? But for that's, that's such a burden to carry. And in the New Testament, this is what Jesus just tries to dismantle. Where he's like, that is not Christianity. That is not the way of Jesus. Because that is a, a heavy yoke that God does not want it to relate with us as the only way. But not only that, is it a burden? You can't enjoy God when that's your view of God, but uh, disappointments and hardships, they're really hard to absorb when this is your paradigm. Back in, in November 28, 2010, the Buffalo Bills, they played the Pittsburgh Steelers in a big game because they're like rivals, and when the Buffalo Bills, they lost because uh, the wide receiver, Steve Johnson, apparently in overtime, he tried to catch an easy pass, he dropped it, and they lost. Now, Steve Johnson, he's a, a Christian, and when he dropped the ball, he went home and he tweeted this. This is a, his Twitter. He said, quote, I praise you 24-7, God, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this, ever. And it's like, okay, like when you see that, you go, wow, this guy, like that's kind of weird. Like, you know, you're blaming God for you dropping the pass. Like, that's strange. And we, you know, we, we kind of scoff at that and we laugh at it. But we do this all the time. We do this all the time. Maybe we don't tweet about it because Asians aren't on Twitter. But we, we, we do this where when you experience deep disappointment, when things aren't going your way in your relationship, in your marriage, in your career, you slowly drift. You slowly kind of dis walk away. There's a low sense of uh, disappointment in the way life is turning out. Why follow a God who allows this to happen in my life? And so when you experience God as life under God only, it's really hard to absorb these disappointments, and it just feels very burdensome. And for some of us, that's why God's not very enjoyable to you, because you're living life under God. Now, for some of you, that's not your issue. You're a little bit different, where it's not life under God, but here's a second paradigm, life over God. Life over God. The way people who live life over God uh, relate to God is you value God's principles but you don't really know God as a person. You like what God says, but you don't really care much about who God is for you. And the reason why is because you believe God, he exists. You believe he created the universe. You even believe that he tells us how to live in the Bible. The Bible is instructions of how to live our lives. But that's it. Because your kind of working paradigm is if the world is the apple again, let's use that one, and you kind of peel it in, like how does the world run? It's not the will of the gods, but it's law. God established the law, how things work. And we just learn those laws and we follow it and hopefully we'll be okay. Uh, it's, it's, uh, the, 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 uh, one way to look at it is uh, it's the watchmaker analogy where God, he created a watch, he gave you the watch. You go, thank you. You don't need a watchmaker anymore because you have your watch. You just learn to follow it. They call this deism with a D. And that's how a lot of Americans tend to follow God. A uh, nice analogy of this is um, if you ever work at, work at Disney Studios or you know anybody who works at Disney Studios, one thing that happens when you walk into Disney Studios, Animation Studios, or wherever Disney Studios, there's always a picture of Walt Disney hanging on the wall. 
And of course, all of them, including us, we all know who Walt Disney is. They all honor and pay their respects to Walt Disney. And in fact, they even live out according to Walt Disney's values. Everything about Walt Disney, it's, you see it in Disneyland, you see it in the Disney movies. But the workers there, they don't know Walt Disney because he's dead. He's not alive to interact with them. They follow his ways, but that's about it. They honor, respect, follow him, but they don't know him. And a lot of Christians who live a life over God, that's kind of you. Where you respect God, you honor God, you even follow God's ways, but he's functionally dead to you. It doesn't matter if he ever rose from the dead, because you just think the Christian way is the good way to follow life, but the fact that he's, if he's alive or not, that doesn't really influence your day-to-day. That doesn't really shape you. Christianity, in other words, it's like a philosophy. This is where a lot of theologians and reform nerds, when you're really reformed and you study theology, you like the theology, but you don't really care about the person. You like the philosophy and the morals and the values that's there, but the fact that there's a person behind it, that is inconsequential for us. It's a philosophical system, and the Bible itself, it's like a philosophy book to instruct us on life. You know, my wife, she, uh, when my son was born, uh, she gave me a journal, a blank journal as a gift. And the front page of the journal, it said, to my son Judah in pen. And then the next page, it had a picture of Judah that, that she drew a baby picture, and the rest is blank pages. I'm like, well, I guess I better write a journal for my son. Like, this is something that Lena wants me to do, my wife. And so, you know, I, I was trying to think, like, okay, if I have this journal and I had to fill it out, what should I write to my son? Like, what should I let him know? And you know, it's for, there's a part of me that wants him to know just how to live his life. Like, I'm tempted to let him know, like, hey, man, this is how you shave. Like, you know, if, I, if I ever die, like, you just know how to shave. Hey, this is how you restore your car. Hey, this is how you uh, set up a 401K. Hey, this is how you purchase a home. Hey, this is how you find a, a spouse. And it's all, you know, there's a temptation to fill with, like, these instructions. And a lot of us here who view life over God, that's how we view the Bible. The Bible is a book of instructions. We love the index section of the Bible where it says about, like, uh, you know, finances and love and so forth because that's what the Bible's for. And it's an instruction manual to tell us how to live life. And that's why when you view it that way, you don't read your Bible often because you don't need much instruction. You're fine day to day. In fact, the Bible doesn't say much about the day to day for you. And that's why it's irrelevant. And not only is it irrelevant, but when you read the Bible, you go, wait, why is it talking about like this temple and this tabernacle? And there's a story about these snakes biting the Israelites in the desert. And you're just like, what is going on here? Because it's so weird and doesn't make sense to you because the Bible is meant to be an instruction manual because God is just your instructor. It's a philosophy. It's a system of life that you kind of adhere to. But imagine if I didn't write an instruction manual for my son. But imagine if that journal, which, by the way, it's still blank, so I'm still figuring out what should I write to my son. Imagine instead of telling him how to live his life, I said, hey, this is how I met your mom. Let me tell you a story. Boom, boom, boom. Hey, this is how it felt when you were born. Let me tell you what it felt like. Hey, these are my, like, my observations of you, like what you're good at, what you're not good at. Hey, this is my hopes for you. This is something that I dream about for you as a seven-year-old uh, boy right now. If I wrote a journal like that, why would my son read it? It would not primarily be so he could know how to live his life, although there might be implications. But if I was not there with him and he had this journal, wouldn't it be so that he could know who his dad is? So he could get a sense of who is this person, so he could have a sense of connection of who this person is, so he could know who, what my hopes and dreams were for him. 
And that's actually what the Bible is. The Bible is a story of a God who wants you to know who he is, who wants to let you know what he thinks of you, and who wants you to know the story of his hopes and his dreams for what he wants humanity to become like. And so when you read this, it's not primarily this information of instruction to figure out the day-to-day, but it's meant to be this relational type of interaction that you have with the Father who made you. But when you live life over God, that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. Because it's all about the principles. It's all about the rules. And that's why when you talk to people who live their Christian faith this way, they'll read their Bibles, they'll know their theology, they'll go to church, but if you ask them the question, how are you experiencing God? They'll have no idea what you're talking about. Like, experience God? What is Are you one of those kooky people? Because they don't know what that means. And what happens is when you live your Christian life that way, it, it starts, it doesn't really like work because you won't understand why are people singing so loudly? Like they won't understand that. Like why, what's the point of singing? Why are people crying when they pray? That's weird. Why, the Lord's Supper, the ordinances, like why are we doing that? Because it doesn't fit in this philosophical system that we tend to create for ourselves. And a lot of us, that's us. Where we are Christians, and yet God feels really far from us. Because we follow his ways, we don't follow him. That's life over God. And again, some of you, that might hit some of you. But here's the third one, and I think this one hits the majority of us. A lot of us, it's not life under God. It's not life over God. But we live life for God. For God. What this life says is, you know how you relate to God? You know how you really live for him? You live for him. Go. Be on mission for God. Serve God. If you're serious about your relationship with God, go do things and serve the world. If the world were this apple again and you'd peel down, like what is driving the world at the center is mission. That's how the world works, through you. That's God's plan for you. His whole hope for you is to go and be on mission to do things for God. And so that's where if there's social justice issues going on, you need to get involved because you have to love your neighbor. There's unreached people groups out there. We need to get involved and go sent over there. If there are ministries that are needed, you need to serve. That's how you really grow and become advanced in your relationship with God. And the reason why this one is so effective for us is because this is what draws us when we're younger especially. And for a lot of us, our formative years of Christianity, it happened when we were younger. And oftentimes, I don't know about you, but uh, when I first hear of like, the word like love or anything, that's like my foundation of how I interpret love the rest of my life. For a lot of you, when it comes to the Christian life, because it happened in your foundation years of college or high school, that's how you interpret the rest of your Christian life. It's about mission and doing things for the kingdom. And the church, we celebrate people like this. We celebrate those who sacrifice the most for mission or for service, who accomplish the most for the advance of mission and service. There's a famous story when I was in college. There's a story of this college student where he was supposed to go on a short-term mission trip. And, you know, if you've ever been on a short-term mission trip, you have to raise, like, thousands of dollars for that. He was, like, a 1000 or $2,000 short. And they had, like, two weeks to go. And so you know what this guy did? He sold his car to go on this mission trip. And when everyone heard that, we're all like, yeah, that's right. And then he shared his testimony of how it was for the mission. So he sold his car. How you get to school, man? Oh, that's, that's later. I'll think more about that later, but I'm going on mission. It was like this legendary tale that was told in a very positive light. Because this was an example of being all out for God. And that's us, where we think that's, yeah, that's the Christian life. You, you, you're super active when you do things for God. And that's why college 
that tends to be like just the golden years. College students, you are living the golden years of your Christian life. This is, this is the peak, man. This is the peak if it's life for God. Because you're serving all the time. You're leaders. You pray like every day with other people. You go on mission trips. College is just beautiful. It's the most beautiful years of your Christian life in life for God. And that's why post-college, you're just messed up. Like you don't know what to do with yourself. Dude, post-college students, when I talk to them, how's, how's your spiritual life after college? They don't know what to feel. Like, this is so weird. I'm, I don't have a prayer meeting tomorrow. I'm working nine to five at my office. And how, you know, I was so used to being on mission, but how is this mission? And it's just really weird for them. Or parents, like if you're a parent, you feel like a non-Christian. Like you're, you're just, we're just in the back, pushing our babies, holding our babies. We can't even be there in the sermon. I'm not picking on Joey, but you know, we're just in the back sitting there. Um, and you just don't feel like a Christian because you're like, dude, how am I engaged? Like I have a kid, how am I engaged to God? Like you just feel off. Or even if let's say you're sick or your family has a crisis, you just don't know what it means to be a radical Christian anymore. Like, what does it mean to be a Christian? Because I can't do those things. And that's a lot of us. It's a lot of us, we struggle with that. And here's what I want to push back on is, while the mission of God, it is super important. It is very, very important. But it is a mistake to reduce that to our life with God. No one illustrates this better than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, or a lot of it, half of it at least, he, uh, he was the ultimate missionary, where he lived out mission, and yet when he would write letters to the churches, he reveals what his greatest desire is. As important as mission is, there's something else that takes precedence over that. For example, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 to 10, look what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss." because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, that I may go on mission for God? No, no, no. I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Paul knew his calling was to be on mission, but his treasure was knowing God. There was a big difference for Paul. He was always on mission, but his deepest treasure was to know him. And not only that, when he writes to churches, he goes, hey, you know what my dream is for the church? It's not for you all become missionaries, although that would be great. But what does Paul write to the church in Ephesus? Chapter 3, verse 14 and 19, Paul writes, for this reason I bow my knees. I am praying for you, church, before the Father, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints the breadth, the length, the height, and depth, to know the love of Christ. The deepest hope he has for his church is that they would know God. But you see, what sometimes for us, when we make the mission of God the primary thing, then the mission of God, it becomes more important than God himself. And when that happens, you notice like just weird habits that take place where like people who love to serve on mission trips and to march in social justice rallies, but we struggle to sit in a Sunday worship. It's weird for us to be here. Or we love to volunteer, we serve hard on Sundays, but we're not serving, it's like, should I come to church today? Or people who do a lot of things for God, but when it comes to like relating to God, it's, it's really weird for us and awkward. And we get tired when we keep doing this. We become, kind of feel kind of stuck in our Christian faith. College is the primary years because you're relating to God in a way that you never want to primarily relate to him. And so that's kind of a law of us, where some of us, there's life under God. Some of us is life over God. 
and some of it's life for God. Which one is you? Which one has been your working paradigm? And oftentimes it's more you can experience the, the, the results of it, that you know where you're at. If you're really burdened these days, if Christianity feels really tiresome to you, you're like, oh, I have to do another church thing, you're probably living life under God right now. God's a burden. You're trying to please him, and it's hard to please him. And that's kind of why Christianity, it's not, it feels not illuminated for you. Or some of you, God, you know, he feels really distant to you. Like, it's like, you like Christianity, you like what the Bible says, but this idea of being a personal relationship with him, that's kind of weird for you. It might be because you're used to life over God. God is someone who's just kind of a philosophy teacher, but he's not really a personal God. And some of us, you're just really confused how to be a Christian because you're older now and you can't do stuff because you're so used to living life for God. That's all you've been taught. That's all you kind of know. And that's the, the common experiences of humankind that transcends our church. And even though there's truth to all those types of relationships with God, they all fall short of how we fully ought to know him. And so in contrast to how we often relate to God, we'll end with how scripture reveals God wants to relate with us. The story of scripture says that it's not mainly life under God, life over God, or life for God that God relates to us, but it is life with him. He's with you. God is with you. This is the whole, I would argue, the whole driving force of what the story of scripture is trying to say of how God wants to relate to his people. And it all starts in the beginning. In the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of the story of the Bible, which is, if you see it, it's not in Genesis, but even before that, the passage we read, John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, it's in our programs. What does it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. What's John talking about? He's talking about Jesus in his relationship with the Father. This is a triune God. We as the church believe in something called the Trinity, where before space, time, and creation, what was God doing? In perfect fellowship, Father, Son, and Spirit. I just imagine, this might sound heretical, but I imagine it's like me when I sit with my friends around a bonfire in, the, in, our, in my backyard. We're just there. We're not doing anything. We're just enjoying each other's company. And what the, the triune, the doctrine of the Trinity says is like that's what God was doing. God was just enjoying perfect fellowship, Father, Son, Spirit. And that's the, the Christian argument is not he, God is like this spiritual force or this theistic God who's far away. He's this personal God in relationship with one another. And that's why the world, again, the last time this was an apple, if you peel down to what makes the world move, it's relationship. God is a relational God, because that's how he was from the very beginning. He was never lonely. He was never craving company. He had company. He is deeply relational, because he's a triune God. And so God, and when we keep reading the story of scripture, what happens is this relational God, he creates mankind in creation. And he creates mankind very differently than the other ancient religions say he, God created mankind. It wasn't to give him food, or to serve him, or to just worship him, but it was in the very beginning, God made mankind to be with him. He dwelled with them. He created the garden and placed mankind there. And God walked with them. He was with them, enjoying this fellowship. They, they joined the bonfire. People were joining the bonfire with the triune God. And that was the creation of mankind, but what ended up happening in the, was what happened? Instead of Adam and Eve and mankind being with God, what do they want to do? 
They didn't want to be with God. They wanted to become like God. And that's us as well. We naturally don't want to be with God. We want to become like God. And so they, when that happens, sin and chaos and disorder happens. And the rest of the Old Testament, you know what it's all about? How can God restore his relationship with humanity? How can God be with his people again despite our sinfulness? And that's why when you have that paradigm, a lot of the Old Testament makes sense. The Old Testament is not just all these kooky laws or these crazy stories, but a big theme of it, of the Old Testament, is this whole idea of uh, tabernacle and temple. This tabernacle, build this tabernacle, build this temple. Why? Because this is how God is present with his people. He wants to be with his people. And the prophecies that are given throughout the Old Testament, it's these prophecies of not only just justice and mercy taking place, but also God will one day dwell with his people. He will be with them. That's, that's like a driving theme. And that's when, when Jesus comes, this is like the ultimate shift in what God's trying to do. In the Gospels, Jesus comes, and he's literally in Matthew 1 described as Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us. And Jesus, when he followed his life in the Gospels, he came and he died on the cross for our sins. So that what? We could just go to heaven? So that all of creation could be restored? Yes, yes, but ultimately is so that we can be with God. So fellowship could be restored with him. Not so that we could just serve him. Not so that we could know he made all things, but we could enjoy fellowship with God. And then when you see the church, we're not left alone, but there, the spirit of God dwells in us because God wants to be with us and us to experience him. And then the last picture we see everything leading to, what is the final picture of the, the story of scripture tell us of how God relates to us? Revelation 21, look again one more time in our passage. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And look at this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. This is where everything's leading to, for us to be with God. A lot of Christians, this is our working paradigm. Jesus died for me 2,000 years ago, and one day I'll see him again in heaven. So until then, I guess we just got to wait, or we got to serve for him, or we got to do the mission, or we got to do something, follow his rules. All true, but in between what's supposed to happen is not only that, but we can experience his presence now. That's why the Spirit is with us, so that we could experience and taste what the goodness of God is like. And if that's missing from your Christian paradigm, Christianity is going to feel really weird. Following Jesus is going to feel like a drag because you're not experiencing his presence. You're not experiencing the whole purpose of what God wants with us. And so how do we do this as a church? How do we experience God's presence in our lives? Well, again, for us, we believe God is here. We believe God wants to meet us here. And that's why as a church, what we want to do is we want to do these practices. Uh, this is the whole theme I said from last week. We want to be a community practicing the way of Jesus in our lives. Not so that we could earn God's favor, not so that we could check off something in our list, but that these are the ways that we can experience God. Where we can experience the goodness of God. There's no agenda. It doesn't lead to a greater mission or a greater thing. It's literally just to enjoy God for God. That's our hope. And I hope that for us, this could be something that our paradigm is, where we, don't, we feel life with God 
It makes life feel full. It makes God feel full. It makes the Christian life feel illuminated because God is with us. He's here with us. His presence is with us. And so as I invite the praise team to come up, can I just invite us to take a moment to pause ourselves and to pray? Wherever you are at, maybe one of those paradigms you kind of fit under, or maybe as, I, as we talk about this, you're just like, I just don't know where I'm at. Can we take a moment to pause? And again, we're going to journey as a church to talk about what does it mean to experience his presence, but if we could pause and confess and really reflect, where are we? What kind of, what kind of faith journey are we on? How do we relate to God? How do we feel the consequences of that? And we just take a pause, a pause and a moment to confess to the Lord where we're at and even pray our hopes for where we would want to be, where we can experience God in our lives either again or maybe for the first time. And so we could take a moment to pray and then I'll close this all in prayer. So let's pray.